0: This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. Supporting me and Gavin and Tyler, we're we're so grateful for that. And uh, this week, um, a lot of you sent me texts and messages and emails, and I- I'm very very thankful for that. Uh, Sarah Baumholz, she sent me this little card that she had made. It was it was really creative, a little handmade thing. And on the inside part of her note, um, she said, "Pastor Michael, October has been so." And she was right. She was really right. Uh, We were able as a family to settle in to our new place. Um, The bridge started to settle in here. Um, And I just hit the 40, the big 4-0 mark this week. Um, And among other things, the ordination process was finalized. So I've been working on that for about 14 months. So I'm glad that that's done. Um, And... And we're now officially an elder, so that's a good thing. But for some reason, as I was reflecting back on these things the past week, a thought came to mind. And I hadn't landed on this thought in a long time, so it was interesting that it just came back to mind all of a sudden. But it was my first experience with the Church of the Nazarene. And I mean, it's been years, decades since I've thought of this. And let me just say, I wish it had never happened. Now, that that sounds kind of bad, but let me explain. Um, My first experience with the Church of the Nazarene was not a good one. Not at all a good one. But it wasn't the Church's fault. It was my fault. Uh, It was a time in life when I shouldn't have done something that I did. A time I should have said, no. It was either my, my sophomore year or my junior year in high school, and I, I can't remember which one, 40's already kicking in, um, but th- that, detail ir- <laughs> that detail is irrelevant. Um, I actually feel like I should probably get used to saying that, oh, the details don't matter now that I'm turning 40. But, so I was playing basketball um, on our high school basketball team, and frankly, I wasn't very good. Uh, I was a bench warmer. I rode the bench the entire season, and um, I, I was working my tail off, though. I was working so hard. I w- if I could do anything, it was outwork everybody else on the team, even if I wasn't a good basketball player at that time. Um, but after working my tail off, my coach noticed it. His name was Coach Kinman, Coach Kinman, and um, he gave me the heads up, how come you're going to start the next game? And I was stoked. I was on cloud nine. This will be my first start of the season. And I felt for a moment like I was unstoppable, right? Um, And and the words of the rapper Ice Cube, get me on the court and I'm trouble, right? Um, And so the coach told me, he told me, how come? Take it easy during the weekend and don't get hurt. And so there I was, gearing up. For my first start of the year, and I, I couldn't contain my excitement for that. I had to wait all weekend for the game to arrive the next week, and my uncle, he was a great basketball player, um, he invited me to go play pickup ball with him and some other folks, and I looked at him, I looked up to him a lot, and so that just amped me up even more. And opportunities like that were rare, and so you, you can probably tell where the story's going. I, uh, I ignored my coach's advice, and I went with my uncle to play pickup ball. We drove for about 45 minutes to Central Church of the Nazarene in Fort Wright, Kentucky. And they had a gym there. We went in, it was nighttime, and um, we shot for teams. We started playing games straight away. And a few minutes in, It happens. (laughs) My ankle got all jacked up, probably sprained my ankle. It was turning purple and blue, immediately swelling up, and um, it was a nightmare. I couldn't even really walk out of the gym, right? Uh, And all I could think about in my head was that scene of my coach telling me a couple days before or a day before not to get hurt and to take it easy over the weekend. And I knew, I knew I wasn't going to heal in a day or two. So my hopes of starting were just shot. I was done. And I was right, right? I, I didn't heal quickly. And I didn't start the game that I was supposed to start. And I, I didn't get to start the rest of the season either. My chances of starting were gone. I disobeyed my coach and I lost his respect. I should have said, no, no. To my uncle. I should have never gone to the Church of the Nazarene. I learned a valuable lesson that day. It wasn't, don't ever go back to the Church of the Nazarene. Um, it was that there are times in life when we should say no to what's in front of us. And I learned that if I had said no to that one thing, it would have been saying yes to starting the game and playing. And we all have moments in life, looking back, where we wish we had just said no. We all have them. We all have those. And we realize that if we had just said no, in that one moment, it could have been a game changer for our lives. Maybe just a day or two. Maybe longer could have made all the difference and so we realize that saying no to one thing would have been saying yes to something else saying no to one thing would have been saying yes to something better but we also know that sometimes saying no can be very very tough we know that saying no to a family member right can be really difficult We know that. Saying no to a family member can be really difficult. Family members, they often have a way of putting pressure on us that can stretch our loyalties to the maximum. Family members, they know our weaknesses. The same goes for our friends. They usually know how to ask for something in a way that makes it a great challenge to say no to them. It goes as well for a boyfriend or a girlfriend dynamic. Sometimes our bosses can take advantage of us and and propose things in a way that makes saying no really difficult. Co-workers, folks we often want to help, can do the same. And in our society, political alliances and social practices can be very real pressures that make it rough for us to say no to certain people or certain things. Here's the point I want to make. One that I was getting at a moment ago. Sometimes saying no is also saying yes. Right? Sometimes saying no is also saying yes. Sometimes saying no to one person or one thing is saying yes to another person or another thing. Saying no to acting one way is saying yes to acting another way. Saying no to spending money one way is saying yes to using it another way. Saying no to an unhealthy relationship is saying yes to preserving mental and emotional health. Saying no to immorality may be saying yes to holiness. Saying no to violence is saying yes to peace. Saying no to arrogance is saying yes to humility. Saying no to envy is saying yes to celebrating other's successes. Saying no to lust is saying yes to self-control. Saying no to greed is saying yes to generosity. Saying no to gluttony is saying yes to healthy living. Saying no to sloth is saying yes to hard work. And so you see, sometimes saying no means also saying yes. There are times in life when no means yes. And as we look at today's focal passage, that's the thought that's sort of on my mind. Especially in verse 8. Right, we're going to get to verse 8, and we're going to reach what's called a vice list. It's a list of vices, or of vice-driven people. And when we say no to these vices, it means saying yes to someone and something else. So I want you to keep that in mind as we read these eight verses that we're about to look at. We're very close to the end of Revelation. Amen. Very, very close to the end of Revelation. And um, there are only three more sermons in Revelation after today. I'm thankful for that. I'm ready to move on out of Revelation. Um, But when it's all said and done, you know, we've been, we'll have been in Revelation for 11 months. It's a long time in the hardest text of all of Scripture. And, you know, I was sharing with some folks uh, recently that many churches, many churches, they don't train congregants Uh, to to be students of scripture for long durations of time. There's like, there's very little endurance when it comes to that. We get, a lot of churches, they get stuck in a rut, right? Get stuck in a rut, and it's tough to get out of it. When we, when a lot of us, maybe we've been, uh, we've grown up, And been fed topical sermons, you know, topical sermon series, a a topic for four weeks and then we move on to another topic. And so we don't learn how to have endurance to work and walk all the way through a text of scripture. So I want to commend you all for sticking with it uh, over the last few months. This, by the way, brings me to our word of the week, actually. It's just a fun one for you, rut busting. I'd never heard of this word until this week. Turn to your neighbor and uh, you can, through your mask, just say, We rut busters. You can turn to your neighbor. <laughs> it's, just, it's hard to say it without laughing, we rut busters. Um, so, rut busting is the act of, of uh, busting out of a rut, right? Um, busting out of a place, a rut is a place that makes us feel trapped and incapable of moving forward. And there's a difference between a rut and a routine. It's a big difference. A routine can be good and healthy. It kind of can give you guidance and boundaries to help you move forward. But a rut, as the definition uh, implies, is just this place where we feel trapped and incapable of moving forward, incapable of escaping. And I hope that as in your being stretched over the last year, you've also felt that you've grown some. You might not even recognize it, right? You might not recognize it right now. Maybe it'll be years down the road before you recognize it. I don't know. But I'm a fan of working through entire books of Scripture at one time. They were written as whole compositions. They should be treated that way, not sort of just frog leaping around and and cherry picking to preach on whatever we want. So again, kudos to y'all on getting through Revelation for. The last almost year. Once we're through Revelation, um, we'll do a short stint on Advent. By the way, at the end of November, we're going to have a youth and cakey service, so I'm excited about that. Um, looking forward to that. But once we're through Revelation, through December, we'll do an Advent series, and then um, perhaps come January, we'll start in the Gospel of Mark. I think that's might maybe where we'll turn, but. For now, we're going to turn our attention to Revelation twenty one, one to eight. And it's our focal passage for the day. And I'm going to read through it once, and then I'm going to just walk back through each verse. And notice as we go that John, he first sees the sky and land. And then later in verse five, he's going to hear the Father, God the Father speak. So we'll see that here. It says this. And I saw. A new sky and a new land. For the first sky and the first land passed by, and the sea was no longer. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from the sky from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tent of God will be with the people. And he will tent with them. And they will be his people. And he himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And neither will there still be death, nor mourning, nor will there still be pain. Because the first things have passed by. And I saw the one sitting upon the throne. This is God the Father. Behold, I am making every new thing and he said write this these words are faithful and true and he said to me it's already occurred I myself am the Alpha and Omega the first and the last I myself will give to drink from the springs of living waters without cost the one overcoming will inherit these things and I'll be his God and he himself will be my son. Moreover, here's that vice list, moreover, to the cowards, to the non-allegiant, both the ones of abomination and murders, both the sexually immoral and witchcrafters, both the idolaters and those lying, their part will be in the lake, the one burning with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so in 21.1, John says, I saw a new sky and a new land. For the first sky and first land passed by, the sea was no longer. So this is a continuation of Revelation 20, what we preached on last week. And this is the end of the next to last, that is the 11th vision. In Revelation, remember, there's 12 visions that sort of help structure the book. This is the end of the 11th one here. So next week we'll enter into the last vision of Revelation But it's a stunning story that John tells. He sees the first sky and the land, first land, they pass by and he sees the sea vanish. The first land and the first sky, they're not destroyed. They're transformed. It's a mistake to read this as if the first, uh, the first earth and the first sky, that is the sky that you and I see today and the land that you and I see today, it's a mistake to read this as if all that will be gone. No, he sees it transformed. He's make, God's making it new. And so if you read it as if everything just dissolves and is gone with the exception of the sea, then it's going to contradict what verse 5 says. Namely, that he's making new everything. He's making everything new. And so John, he's looking ahead now to what's happening at Christ's return. One thing that happens is that this place is renewed. God, God has kept His promise to Noah. You remember way back in Genesis, Genesis 10 and 11, right, to Noah. God has kept His promise all the way up until Jesus has returned that He is never going to destroy the earth again. And even when Jesus returns, He doesn't. He transforms the earth, the land. God is good as always on His word, on His covenant, on His promise. And so, maybe you've heard things like, since the first destruction of the earth was with a flood and God promised never to do that again, the next destruction must be by fire. Has anybody ever heard that? No, nobody. I've heard that a bunch. Um, The reality is, you know, the earth was never completely destroyed. Even when Noah was in the ark, he was still in the earth. The earth itself wasn't destroyed. The land was ravaged by the flood. But the planet itself wasn't destroyed, obviously. It's still here, after all. So, to presume that the earth is going to be destroyed is just wrong. And to conclude from God's promise, a sort of negative view that the entire earth is going to be destroyed by something like fire, that's just not right. It's evangelical mythology, that kind of thing. And so part of what I have to do from time to time is help us to to see some of this evangelical mythology that has been created over time and then help pull back some of those layers to get us in line with more of a scriptural view. We're going to go on to verse 2. It says this. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down from the sky from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And as I've said before, the city is actually a people. It's not like a physical, like, New York City coming down out of the sky. That's not what's happening. Right? It's a people, a bride. But I want to say this now this New Jerusalem is the people of God. It's the people of God coming down. Right? Which is kind of interesting uh, to think about. And and what she's doing is as the holy city, she's prepared herself as a bride. She is overcome as the first couple chapters of Revelation, first three chapters, told her to. You remember, as I said a couple weeks ago, right, during a Jewish wedding, kind of what happens, um, the, the bride, she adorns herself, she puts her veil on, and then, this is in the evening, the husband will come to her house, open the door, he'll unveil her, and then he'll lead her back to his own house, With like a group of people, it's this great, beautiful torchlight procession. It's amazing. And so uh, we have something similar going on here in this uh, description. The bride coming down to the bridegroom. Verse 3 and 4 says this, And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tent of God will be with the people, and he'll tent with them. And they'll be his people. He himself will be their God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And neither will there still be death or mourning pain or pain. Because the first things have passed by. And so here, John, at first he hears the voice of God. And he says that God says that he's now coming to dwell with his people. To tent among them. To tabernacle among them. And like a married couple... The bride will be his, and the bridegroom will be hers. It's a beautiful image, some sort of priestly and temple image thrown in. And as we've heard about twice in Revelation already, in Revelation 1 and in Revelation 7, the faithful in Christ, the bride of Christ, they all have their tears wiped away. It's an amazing picture. No more suffering, no more pain, no more death, no more evil. It's all been transformed. That pain, that torment, that suffering has been transformed. And 21.5 continues with John seeing now. He heard him first, now he sees him. He sees God the Father on his throne. It's very similar to Revelation 4, that, that first scene of the throne room in Revelation. And it says, uh, and I saw the one sitting on the throne, and behold, I am making everything new, or I'm making new Everything. And uh, and he said, write this. These words are faithful and true. So he's telling John, write this. Write what? Well, write what he just said. Behold, I'm making new everything. Write that down, John. Because those words are faithful and true. And so we get this guarantee from God that he is making new everything. Not just some things, right? He's making new everything. He's not destroying it all. He's not upending it all. He's not doing away with it all. Instead, he's making new everything. We need to latch on to that and hold firmly to that promise. That's one of the most hope-filled statements in all 66 books of Scripture. That line right there. John, write this. Behold, I'm making new everything. But you know what's even crazier is this. He's already started that renewal process. Already started it. It's a present tense thing. Behold, right now I am making new everything. Like it's already started. Like it already started in you and in me. He's making us new. He's making new everyone and everything. And he's invited us to begin through the Holy Spirit renewing things as much as we're capable of right here and right now. Leading people into a renewal of life, a renewal of land, renewal of the ocean, renewal of the sky, whatever. We're invited into that. And when he returns, it'll reach its culmination and be finished and fully perfected. These words are faithful and true. And I believe that. I believe that. Let's look at the next couple of verses. 6 and 7. It says, and, and He said to me, I myself am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. I myself will give to drink from the springs of living water without cost. The one overcoming will inherit these things and I'll be his God and He'll be my Son. Now as you know, hopefully you know, the letters Alpha and Omega are the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Um, and so you have first and last built into Alpha and Omega, right? And I agree, there's a scholar named Richard Balcom, and he says, he says this, um, he says that God is the first word in creation and the last word in the new creation, And I really like that. God is the first word in creation when He spoke in Genesis. And He's the last word, the final word in the new creation when Jesus returns. And so, this first and last, He's going to bring about this this bride of Christ, this city, this people. There's no sea in this city because He Himself will be the reflect. reflect, (laughs) refreshing water that flows the water of life the river of life and all this imagery it's built directly on genesis i'll say a little bit more about this next week too but you'll remember this right eden eden is a big place and in eden there's a mountain and on top of that mountain in eden there's a garden And it has rivers flowing down all the sides of the mountain. That garden on top of the mountain has rivers flowing down the sides of the mountain into Eden. It's a really amazing picture. Kind of like reminds me of the Ko'odos when, when we're in rainy season, right? You're driving over on the Kaneoe side and man, you just see the rivers flowing down the sides of the waterfalls. I think that's kind of what Eden, the garden on top of the mountain in Eden looked like. A lot of people, they conflate Eden with the garden of Eden. But Eden was a big place. The garden was just a small portion of Eden, right? And it was that small portion up on the mountaintops. Go back and read Genesis 1 and 2 and you'll read about the waters trickling down, especially Genesis 2, the rivers flowing down the mountainside from Eden. It's beautiful. God the Father is saying that this is a renewal. When Christ returns, this is a renewal of that garden on the mountaintop in Eden. And if you look at the first verse of next week's chapter, or next week's uh, sermon, 21 9, right? They're on a mountaintop. John ends up on a mountaintop, and that's where he's seeing this bride coming down from. He's not seeing the bride come down out of the sky. He's seeing the bride come down off of the mountain. Look at nine, if you have your text in front of you. He's seeing the bride come down off of the mountain. And this fits so perfectly with Jewish thought, where Eden came to be associated with Mount Zion, as if it was on top of Mount Zion. We read about that in Revelation 14.1. So here's the picture. Jesus is returning, and he's, he's, he's touched down. And he looks up, and he sees this mountaintop, and the bride, his bride is coming down, descending to him from this mountaintop in this beautiful recess, uh, procession. So it's, it's a mixing a number of images here. So there's this hopeful imagery. And then it seems to get Negative. For a moment twenty one eight God the Father is saying moreover to the cowards and non allegiant the ones that are uh, the ones of abomination murderers the sexually immoral witchcrafters idolaters those lying their part will be in the lake the one burning with fire and brimstone which is the second death and here here's where I want to suggest to you that saying no to these things is an act of saying yes to God. Sometimes saying no is saying yes. And you know, as I look at where our society is today, I have some concerns. I'm concerned. I'm concerned, wow. Mendo, you want to help me out here? I'm concerned that there's not enough saying no happening. I'm concerned that there's not enough saying no to worldly ways by believers. I'm also concerned there's not enough saying yes to God. I'm concerned. I'm not trying to be alarmist. But some of what we're seeing is alarming. Some of what we're seeing in our society is alarming. It's as if progressivism is the new religion of the day. And on one side, right, you have that. On the other side, you have the civil religion or nationalism that's also kind of like its own religion. So for us Christians, we need not be on either side of that. Our allegiance is to Christ. And so following some insights from Rod Dreher, I want to come to a close this morning or afternoon by leaving you just with a handful of ways... That we can live in these crazy times, that we can faithfully say no in order to say yes to God. First, I want to encourage you to not live by lies, don't subscribe to lies. Live as much as is possible with you in the truth, and stand up for truth and speak the truth, even if it costs you be truthful it may cost you a reputation a friend a relationship a job a social some social standing etc but speak the truth let your no to falsehood be a yes to truth and truth telling no i'm not going to lie no i'm not doing that falsehood yes to truth yes to truth second have a healthy respect for the past for history especially church history or Christian history. It's fashionable these days to be all about the future. But the reality is, whoever controls the story, hear me when I say, whoever controls the story about the past shapes the present. Whoever controls the story about the past shapes the present. You can see that happening in our country today. There's great division over this. Some people feel like their story is being pulled out from under them, it's good and it's bad, that it's being rewritten. And part of that is because whoever controls the story of the past shapes the present. This is true. And so whoever shapes the present also shapes the future. So let's be intentional about learning our own history and preserving it because once we let go of our history, we're vulnerable. Once we let go of our history, somebody else gets to tell our story. It goes for our personal history, our family history, our societal history, our congregational history, our denominational history, Whoever gets the control of that story shapes the present and the future. So, have a big fat no to erasing history and say yes to preserving it. Third, I want to encourage you to stand firm in your faith, your allegiance to Christ. Your allegiance to Christ is something that no one can ever take from you. Whether it's a liberal judge threatening you with prison For your Christian stance, a society pressuring you to cave to a progressive agenda or be ridiculed or ostracized, a media persistently overlooking you and the good you do in favor of ridiculing you because you're a Christian, stand firm in your faith no matter. Period. Stand firm in your faith. It's the bedrock of your identity, I hope. They're already. Look, uh, these things aren't even far off into the future that we got to be concerned. They're happening. They're happening right now. They're already here. Certain figures in our nation, even, are pushing these things harder and harder all the time. So, your no to cowering under social pressure and political pressure is a yes to standing firm in the kingdom of God, in the principles of the kingdom of God. When your turn comes, you need to be sure that you're committed to truth, that you know your history, and that you can stand firm in your allegiance to Christ. Fourth, you've got to make sure you're plugged into a solid faith community. It's always been key among the faithful, among the body of Christ, to have people who have your back, That's always been part of the church's DNA, gathering together and being together, being there for each other. It's been happening for thousands of years. And it's in here that your quiet allegiance is shaped. I didn't say silent allegiance. I said your quiet allegiance. There's no such thing as a silent allegiance in the kingdom of God. It doesn't exist. By quiet, I don't mean silence. I simply mean living humbly and living faithfully. And when someone gives you the invitation to share, then take it. It's different than sort of barging your way into somebody's life as a believer and just trampling over them. Let, be patient, and let the gospel ferment in your relationships. A patient ferment. God is still good at what he does. He doesn't need you running roughshod over a bunch of people. Trust Him. He's still good at what He does. He's still good at changing heart minds. So your no to rampant individualism is a yes to the community of faith. Here's another one. Let your immediate family and or this church family be a place where you are trained in the art of what we might call the holy no. The holy no. Let this place where you get some resistance training, be where you get some resistance training in. A sanctified resistance, if you will. You're in your peer groups and in your small groups, being active in our church family, learning the art of the holy no. A sanctified resistance. Movements like Black Lives Matter. Part of their mission statement is to destroy the traditional nuclear family. Go read it, it's right on their website. They want to undermine the family and undo the family. It's one of the reasons I can't support Black Lives Matter. Even though I have dark-skinned children, I will not support that organization. We, on the other hand, wholly affirm the traditional family and the family in general. And we won't budge on that. So it's saying no to undermining the family and saying yes to acknowledging the fact that families are the backbone, backbone of human society and the backbone of human flourishing. And so finally, perhaps the most difficult of all is be willing to suffer for everything I just said. Be willing to suffer for truth-telling, for preserving your past, for valuing the church, for upholding the family, and standing firm in Christ's community. Your no to backing down to a society that increasingly frowns upon church and Christians is a yes to being willing to suffer for it. And if you can make that decision, You'll be listed as an overcomer in Christ's book. You'll be a partaker in Christ's victory. You'll have overcome just as He charged you to. So learn the art of sanctified resistance, the art of a holy no. I will not back down.